Hello, Strange Stories UK here. A Happy New Year to all. Today is the 2nd of January 2019. Today's podcast is set in Eastbourne and is concerning a doctor who split opinion in his hometown. He became well known all over the world after a sensational court case that was avidly followed. It's the case of John of Dr. John Bodkin Adams. If you have any questions or comments, Strange Stories UK has a Facebook and Instagram account. Please be advised that I do not attempt any editing. I'll tell the story in one take, so apologies for any stumbling over words, dogs scratching at the door, cocks crowing. I hope you enjoy the story. Dr. John Bodkin Adams was an Ulster-born doctor. It was 1922. He was in his early 20s when he applied for a position with a Christian practice in the genteel Sussex town of Eastbourne. The practice would start the day with prayers, which suited Adams, who was a pious man who kept his faith all of his life. He was known to fall on his knees and pray before entering a sick patient's bedroom. At this time, working people paid a national insurance stamp that gave them access to, to doctors although separate insurance had to be taken to pay for any hospital health care. Wives and children were not covered and had to rely on insurance, charity and kind doctors. Fees for GPs were increasing for the middle classes and the wealthy, who were outside the system. They registered as private patients. It was almost normal practice in Eastbourne at the time for doctors treating private patients to give them nominal bills on the understanding that the doctors would receive something in the patient's will. This was not considered illegal or against medical ethics. As Adams would tell his patients, you don't have to pay tax on bequests. Wills not bills were his preferred method. It helped preserve the patient's capital and saved him from the unedifying paperwork of bills and tax. In a small town such as Eastbourne, it was important for a doctor to develop a relationship with his patients. Antibiotics had not yet been discovered, and effective treatments for many ailments were for the future. High blood pressure leading to strokes were a common cause of death, and sudden death for infections was not rare. Months of convalescence after infection and injury were expected, and the doctor's support at such times was important. By the mid-1930s, Adams had worked his way up to become a senior partner and had a flourishing practice of 2,000 patients, half being national insurance panel patients, the rest being private patients who paid half a guinea for a visit. Adams became very popular with his patients, many of them lonely elderly widows who liked to chat with their medical advice and treatment along with reassurances over their general condition. Adams made himself available any time of the day. He would put clothing over his pyjamas if he called at night. He would do this for all of his patients, rich or poor. For the treatment of elderly patients, he would often give an injection of cytamin, which was vitamin B12, a tonic for tiredness, or similar treatments that would have a placebo-like effect. Adams, along with other doctors at the time, often gave thyroid tablets as a cure for anything, from obesity to fatigue, for his patients. 
with no firm evidence of thyroid disease. Adams was ingratiating with his patients, who were often rich and grateful. He noticed that the lonely and elderly patients appreciated his company. He did not make friends easily, but enjoyed listening to his elderly patients, many able to tell an interesting tale after a full life. These were gentle people who treated him as an equal. He liked to think that they were friends as much as patients. Adams, who had come from humble origins, did not have a family of his own, was able to devote his time to his patients. The doctor had many sides. He could be brusque and borderline rude, but he could be kind and caring. He was not a likeable man. He could turn on the charm, but in reality, he was withdrawn and taciturn. However, he did a lot of charity work for various church groups, who worked long hours, often from seven in the morning to nine at night, and then he would make night visits if required. It was Dr. Adams' generosity that kept the Eastbourne branch of the YMCA, of which he was joint chairman, solvent. He also sponsored other organisations. Adams also had a craving for gadgets, possibly for what he did not have as a child. He had a fascination for cars, cameras, guns, all sorts of gadgets. Also, there wasn't much subtle about Adams. He would ask his patients if he was to be remembered in their will. He could be indiscreet and happy to talk about his financial gains. Although he didn't indulge in alcohol, sexual activity or drugs, his hard work in charity work and his religion were his motivation. Later he would devote much time to his shooting. Adams had become victim of a whispering campaign. This started in 1935 when Adams inherited over half a large estate from a patient called Matilda Witten. The will was contested by her relatives, but it was upheld in court. Adams said that he was good friends with the deceased and it was her way of saying thank you. A few local doctors started to distance themselves from him. Adams then began receiving anonymous postcards about him bumping off patients. These continued for many years. Adams' solicitor said it was not exceptional when his clients were making out their wills for them to say that they wanted to give Dr Adams a legacy. James would then say to them, his solicitor, did he not give you a bill? And they would reply, oh yes, but I want to give him more. And they did. He was single. He had time to chat up his old ladies. Widows could be lonely, and if a man was seen going into their home, there was a danger of gossip and scandal, unless that man was a doctor or a priest. Local gossip did notice that Adams was thought to be making a practice of cultivating wealthy elderly patients. He was making a good living, benefiting from the fact that rich people often remember their doctors in their wills, along with their chauffeurs, valets, cooks and others. There was competition among the doctors in Eastbourne for patients. Adams were not popular with other doctors, local doctors, as he did not use their expertise, but sent his patients to specialists in London. When World War II broke out, Adams was excluded from the pool payment system, which paid local doctors from a fund for their panel patients. It was clear that the other Eastbourne doctors had ganged up against him. 
as many of his wealthy patients had left, it was a difficult time for him, and he may have resented the way that he'd been treated. However, Adams stayed in Eastbourne as a doctor with what private patients he could find. After the war, the doctor's practice flourished, much to the annoyance of other Eastbourne doctors who considered themselves a cut above him. Adams was now making about £10,000 a year, when the average wage was about £500 a year. His practice included the cream of Eastbourne society. Adams' private practice was doing so well that he cut down on his national health patients, keeping about 800. Yvonne King was a patient of Mr Adams. Her patients had the, the Mason Hotel after the war. She tells of how Adams dealt with his patients. She thought Adams was kind and a considerate doctor. At the hotel it was noticed that the, doc the husbands would often bring their wives down for the week while they worked in London. Usually the woman was going through the menopause and was finding it difficult. Dr Adams would hold their hands and say, now sit down and tell me about how you feel. Invariably the husband would come back on the Friday and find his wife much happier and put it down to the sea air. But it was the doctor giving a worried woman time to talk about her condition. He built up a rapport with many of his patients and they left him something in their wills, which was common then. Today it goes to a dog's home. It was bad luck that a number of, died, a number of his patients died about the same time, giving rise to rumours, partly fed by resentment that he should be benefiting. The son of a physiotherapist who sometimes worked with Adams in the 1950s recalled that after the death of a patient with cancer, his mother told him that Dr Adams had eased the patient's death. This was said in the sense that it had helped the patient and it was no way critical. Suspicions again rose against Adams in 1950 with the death of the eccentric Mrs Edith Morrill. Nurses had observed him dosing her with various medications, including barbiturates, doses that grew bigger as the stricken woman sank deeper. Adams did well in her will. During 1955, the chief constable of Sussex, who was one of Adams' patients, received three anonymous phone calls accusing the doctor of murder. These were ignored. There was no evidence to substantiate the rumours. Then there was a the death of a middle-aged woman with no history of illness, but many influential friends. The police received a call from the music hall performer Leslie Henson, whose friend Gertrude, Bobby Hullett, had died unexpectedly while being treated by Adams, months after her husband had passed, both death certificates being signed by Adams, who was friendly with both of them and benefited from their wills. It seems that Dr Adams did not handle the situation leading up to their deaths well making a number of what in retrospect can be seen as mistakes. Scotland Yard were asked to assist the Sussex force and newspaper headlines started asking questions over deaths being investigated for murder. Superintendent Hannan of Scotland Yard began to investigate and took over the investigations during August 1956. He found that over the past 20 years Adams had been a beneficiary in more than 130 wills, totalling £45,000, which they would be about uh, £1.5 million. 
Also, he had gifts of two Rolls Royces, furniture, jewellery, silver and other antiques. It was also noted that most of the deaths were given as stroke, cerebral thrombosis or haemorrhage, as causes of death. Most of the patients had been prescribed narcotic drugs, morphine or heroin, and most had been cremated or embalmed. This was considered suspicious. Hannon of the Yard, as he was known to the public, was a satirically elegant man and knew how to play the press. He was a skilled detective who knew just how far to pressurise his suspect and stay on the right side of the law. Although he had been accused of bombastic, arrogant and overbearing manner in his previous case. Also in Hannon's team was Brinley Pugh, who was head of CID in Eastbourne. Even though Adams had delivered his children, Pugh was said to have an obsession with convicting Adams. Hannon also became fixated on the idea that Adams had murdered many elderly patients for legacies. Although Adams was generally only a minor beneficiary in their wills. Investigators decided to focus on cases from 1946 to 1956 only. Of the 310 death certificates examined by Home Office pathologist Francis Camp, 163 were deemed to be suspicious. On the 24th of November 1956, Adams was arrested. He was held on 13 charges regarding misuse of drugs and forgery charges. These charges were very minor, such as an elastic knee support prescribed to a patient on a free prescription to to which she was not entitled. Most of the charges were Adams signing NHS forms for pre-prescriptions on the NHS and all for under a pound in value. This was not an uncommon practice for doctors with their private patients. There were also charges under the Cremation Act which in effect were, when signing the cremation form, there was question, have you been left anything in the will of the deceased? Adams had written no, as most doctors did. Nobody in living memory had ever been charged with such an offence. Adams was given bail and did not seem concerned by these petty charges, but his solicitor knew that they were holding charges. He questioned Dr Adams on whether he had any records regarding prescriptions given to patients that had died. Adams thought not, but on searching his, uh, on searching, his solicitor found a brown paper parcel which had fallen behind a filing cabinet in the basement of Adams' house. It contained eight ruled exercise books. On the 18th of December 1956, Hannon and his team arrested Adams for the murder of Alice Morell. Then he ordered the exhumation of former patients of Adams. On the 14th of January 1957, the case went before the magistrates' courts, as is normal before being referred to a Crown Court. The magistrates were lay people, advised on legal points by their clerk, usually an experienced solicitor. Queues for the 70 public gallery seats started long before dawn. The dilemma for the prosecution was that although Adams was suspected of killing multiple patients, only one name could appear on the indictment, Mrs Morell. Each case of murder had to be considered separately and then proved beyond reasonable doubt. 
After the doctor's plea of not guilty, the trial played out to great publicity. The prosecution called 40 witnesses as the story unfolded. But neither prosecution nor defence were ready to show their hands. Indeed, the defence half expected the case to be thrown out as they considered it weak. But it was referred to the Old Bailey, which set the scene for one of the trials of the century, as it was called. 18th of March 1957 Court number one, the Old Bailey. There were two charges. First, that Adams had murdered Mrs Morell, and secondly, of murdering Mr and Mrs Hullett. Each charge was to be considered separately. The trial judge was Justice Patrick Devlin. The lead defence barrister was Mr Lawrence. He was not a criminal lawyer, but was to run rings around the prosecution. The prosecution was led by Sir Reginald Manningham Buller, a.k.a. Sir Bullying Manor, as he was known to some. Adams was to be tried on one count of murder, that of Mrs Edith Alice Morell. The prosecution claimed that Adams had murdered a number of elderly patients and had suggested that his modus operandi was to administer heroin and morphine with the intention of making his patient addicted and under his influence. He would induce them then to leave him legacies and cash or kind in their wills and then finally giving them a sufficiently large dose of drugs to cause their death. And day two of the trial, two former nurses for Mrs Morell were to give evidence against Adams, basically saying that Mrs Morell was unconscious while being injected with large doses of morphine and heroin. However, the defence lawyer, Mr Lawrence, carefully unpicked their stories. The defence star exhibit was the nurse's notebook, which showed that smaller quantities of the drugs had been given to the patient than the prosecution had stated. The notebooks also recorded that the two injections made the night before death, and supposed to be the killer dose, were recorded as being that of paralaldehyde, described as a safe soporific drug that would not kill. The notebooks indicated that the nurse's testimony was incorrect on many points. For example, on the last day of her life, Mrs Morell was said by the nurses to have been rambling and semi-conscious, whereas the notebook said that she had partridge, a pudding, and brandy and soda for dinner. The unfortunate nurse that had to give evidence first was humiliated by Lawrence, who suggested that her testimony could not be trusted and that her memory must have been playing her tricks, to which she readily agreed, after which she said, I have nothing to say. It was then shown that the three nurses who were witnesses for the prosecution were travelling together on the train from London, discussing the case with each other and advising each other on what to say. A commuter on the train discussed that the nurse's discussion of the case on the train and in public had telephoned Mr Lawrence to inform him. The nurses were given a dressing down by the judge and informed that the prosecution that witnesses should not speak to each other while the trial was in progress. The prosecution had expected the nurse's evidence to be short and not contested, whereas it had taken a week and the evidence had been destroyed. To some, the Crown's case had already collapsed, 
So the medical evidence due to be heard the next week was to be crucial to ensure prosecution. Nothing went right for the prosecution in the second week. Dr. Douthwaite was a medical witness for the prosecution. But he did the case and his own professional standing no good during the trial. Douthwaite's evidence fell away as Lawrence skillfully questioned him point by point. Douthwaite, in not conceding points to Lawrence, was left in a ridiculous position in which he implied that all doctors that give morphine are potentially murderers. His arrogance was not lost on the judge or the jury. The defence brought in other expert witnesses that argued that Mrs Morell died of illness rather than drugs, thus suggesting that alternative medical opinions were valid. As the trial went into the third week, the only chance for the prosecution would be to break down Adams. But they were denied that chance, as the defence said that they were not putting Adams in the witness box. The defence reasoned that, as a doctor, unlike the prosecution, is unable to have notes, he has to remember events from six years ago. If he makes one inaccuracy, however innocent, it will be seized upon by the prosecution and the press. So the burden of proof will lie with the prosecution. In the closing speech for the defence, other points were made, such as the unlikelihood of any doctor murdering a patient who has just a few weeks to live for a legacy of £275. Also, Mrs Morell had been prescribed large doses of morphine by her former doctors and that Adams was just continuing with the treatment. The defence also pointed out that all the witnesses for the prosecution had been discredited. In his summing up, Judge Devlin argued that the doctor, that a doctor has no special defence, but he's entitled to do all he can and all that is proper and necessary to relieve pain, even if the measures he takes may incidentally shorten life. He made one legal direction that established the double effect principle in respect to the mens rea of murder. Where restoring a patient to health is no longer possible, A doctor may lawfully give treatment with the aim of relieving pain and suffering, which, as an unintentional result, shortens life. Liability for murder can be avoided if medicine, which is beneficial to the patient, is given despite the knowledge that death will occur as a side effect. In short, the judge was saying that the case for the defence was manifestly strong, and he was telling the jury that Adam should be found not guilty and the jury just took 45 minutes to do this. There was another moment of high drama when the prosecution withdrew the second indictment which was to judge the deaths of Mr and Mrs Hullett. The reason given that the publicity given to the trial would make it difficult to ensure a fair trial or any other trial on the matter. The truth, however, would be that it would be clearly very difficult for the prosecution to prove murder and the prosecution did not want to lose another case. Adams returned to Eastbourne. He still had 13 minor charges to answer at Crown Court in Sussex. The charges regarding the drug issued by the NHS for private patients. Regarding the cremation certificates, Adams said that patients had often mentioned that they intended to leave him something, but when their wills were read out his name wasn't mentioned, so he could never be sure if he had actually been left a bequest. 
He also made the point that other Eastbourne doctors had received large bequests from the patient's wills. These were never mentioned. He mentioned a Dr McQueen who had received twice the amount that Adams had received and a Dr Kent who had received more from one will than all the wills that left money to Adams. There'd be no gossip about these doctors, although it has to be said they were much smoother personalities than Adams. There was an atmosphere at the Lewis Court of, well, we didn't get him for the murders, but we'll get him on these charges. One witness testified that in his experience of 50 years, he had never seen a form that doctors said that he would benefit from patient's will after signing the death certificate. Adams wanted to fight the charges, but his counsel advised him to plead guilty, which he did, and he was fined a staggeringly high amount of 2,000 guineas. Adams was struck off the medical register, asked to leave his doctor's practice, and resigned from his charity committees. However, Adams sold his life story to the Daily Express for £10,000. Cash that was found untouched in the original envelope after his death in 1983. He also sued newspapers for substantial sums for referring to him as a mass murderer. Adams also sued the BBC. There was a TV programme that was being broadcast about an American doctor. The commentator said, oh, so he had done a Bodkin Adams. He received a £2,000 cheque, which he cashed at the bank, saying, look what I got from the BBC. In fact, the doctor was still suing the media up to 1969 for various amounts. Adams did miss being a doctor, and he filled the void by cruises and holidays. In the late 1950s, there were restrictions on the amount of travel money that could be taken out of the country. To overcome this, his doctor gave him certificates for foreign travel on account of a poorly chest, but mainly because it was thought best that he was out of the country. People that saw him abroad said he appeared to be having a wonderful time, chatty and jolly, busily organising bridge evenings for overwintering widows who thought the world of him. Adams also spent a lot of time with his clay pigeon shooting. Adams had asked the Medical Defence Organisation to get him reinstated as a doctor, but this was without, without much success. He had to hire his own lawyer, and he was reinstated in 1961 and set up his practice again in Eastbourne. His supporters, who idolised him, flocked back to his practice. However, Adams was denied permission to dispense morphine or heroin again. Adams was a popular figure around Eastbourne, and though he remained dogged by notoriety, he dismissed local gossip as the laughter of fools and the crackling of thorns under the pot. Adams could be generous. He would tip his garage so they would give his cars priority. After 1972, he sold his Rolls-Royce cars and bought an Austin Maxi to go with his Austin Mini. His garage observed that he was the only man they knew who had a chauffeur for a mini car. For those that did a service for Adams, he would tip them. He would do this by shaking hands and passing a coin wrapped in a pound coin or a five pound note. Adams continued to be generous to charities he supported and kept up with his interests especially shooting. 
After he passed away in July 1983, the local newspaper reported on his funeral, attended by about 180 friends and former patients. His belongings were auctioned off and his house sold. The estate was worth £402,000, approximately £1.3 million on today's prices. He, he left generous legacies to his housekeeper, his chauffeur, and the rest was shared out amongst 50 relatives and friends. The media took advantage of his death by printing stories suggesting Adams had got away with murder. The solicitors acting for his, for, as his, for his executors claimed that the papers would never dare print such articles whilst he was alive. The press council argued that Adams' reputation was overridden by the public interest. The Bodkin Adams trial of 1956-57 was notorious for the publicity it was given all over the world. It was a soap opera in an age before most people had television. The popular opinion was that Adams was guilty for the high jump. Newspaper sales were sky high when reporting on the case. Before package holidays took off in the 1960s, a certain few seaside towns had a certain cachet and Eastbourne in particular had an international reputation for upper-class respectability. Adams was well known in local social circles and Masonic circles, and was an internationally known clay pigeon shooter. Adams was not popular with the Eastbourne doctor's colleagues. They gained up on him, and it was a fellow doctor who informed on him misusing NHS prescriptions. However, many people thought there was a conspiracy to clear him. There were rumours that there was a cover-up by Masons in order to cover up homosexual liaisons, homosexuality being illegal until 1967. These liaisons were between the Deputy Chief Constable of Eastbourne, Alexandra Seekings, the Mayor of Eastbourne, Roland Gwynne, who was brother of the local MP, and Adams. Wynne was a patient of Adams and visited him every day at 9am. They went on frequent holidays together and had recently spent three weeks together in Scotland shooting. This information was known to the police, but when reporters came in possession of the information, they were warned off by the police. It was said that Masons were protecting Seekins and Gwynne. During the trial at the Magistrates' Court during 1957, Lord Goddard, the Lord Chief Justice dined with Ronan Gwynne and the Chairman of the Lewis Magistrates at the White Horse Hotel in Lewis. It's not unreasonable to assume that Gwynne, who may have been Adam's lover, was trying to influence what happened in the trial. Gwynne distanced himself from Adams after the trial. He died in 1971, Adams signing his death certificate. The discovery of the nurses' notebooks, the turning point in the trial. It was claimed that these were found behind a filing cabinet in Adams' basement, just before his trial. This was after a police search had failed to find them. Very convenient for the defence. The prosecution's copies disappeared before the trial, depriving them of the opportunity of studying them. The prosecution failed to ask for an adjournment to study the notebooks when they were rediscovered which again seems very odd. It also seems that the defence managed to get hold of the prosecution notes. 
There was a strong suspicion in Eastbourne that there was a Freemason conspiracy to get Adams off, in other groups conspiring to get him convicted. The affair had all the ingredients for a scandalous gossip. Such things were not supposed to happen in ultra-respectable Eastbourne. But once a, slowly, once a story started and was fuelled by the media and gossip, it took all sorts of new directions. Amongst other claims for Adams getting off was that Harold Macmillan was the brother-in-law of the Duke of Devonshire, who had died at the same time as Mrs Morell at his home in Eastbourne. His death certificate was signed by Adams, who was also his doctor. Macmillan, who had become Prime Minister during the preparations for the, for the trial, might not have wanted the case to be investigated further. His wife was having an affair at the time and did not want any further investigation into his private life. So it is suggested that he put on pressure to stop the trial. Another consideration was that the government did not want to upset doctors who were in dispute with the newly formed NHS. A doctor being hanged for prescribing medication could have led to a mass defection of doctors from the NHS, as well as shaken public confidence in the medical profession. Also, the case could have led to doctors being too scared to give adequate pain relief in case they were accused of murder. A local pharmacist of the time, Tom Seal, is quoted, Adams used morphia and heroin more than other doctors of the day, and some of his patients might have become dependent upon it. I am also in no doubt that he eased the passing of some of his patients, although you have to say that they were very elderly and ill, and here you are in very muddy waters. There was lots of suspicion, but impossible to prove. Basil Barkworth was a fellow doctor at the same practice as Adams and knew him well. He argued that Adams was incapable of murdering anyone. And if he did a murder, he would not have been caught without a dangerous drugs register. It would have been easy for him to accumulate drugs on the side and show everything was in order. He would have covered his tracks. He wasn't stupid. The trial judge, Sir Patrick Devlin, later said in 1985 that Adams may have been a mercenary mercy killer. The Times newspaper of the 12th of May 1999 reported that a doctor, David Moore, was cleared of murdering a patient to cheers in court. This trial, last presided over by Justice Hooper, took place at Newcastle Crown Court. The case had lasted 18 days and the jury was out for 65 minutes. The case would have gone unnoticed, but the Sunday Times published an article on euthanasia. A journalist, Rachel Ellis, asked Moore on his opinion on the subject. Moore said that he'd given patients, many patients, overdoses of diamorphine, a comedy repeated in an interview on television. In particular, his statement that this week I helped two patients on the way to a pain-free release from their painful agony and suffering and that he had perhaps helped 10 patients per year for 30 years. This attracted considerable media attention. One newspaper called Moore Britain's greatest serial killer and referred to him as Dr Death. Dr Michael Wilkes, chairman of the British Medical Association's Ethics Committee, said after the trial that guidelines for doctors were insufficiently clear. 
we are no further along the road towards any change in the law on euthanasia. Broadcaster Ludovic Kennedy said, Dr Moore should never have been tried. The whole trial was a complete waste of time and money. He was only doing what hundreds and hundreds of doctors do in the country every year. The sooner the law is changed to allow doctors to legally help people on their way, the better. Although euthanasia is illegal in the UK, doctors are allowed to administer potentially lethal doses of pain-killing drugs to relieve suffering, provided that they do not primarily intend to kill the patient. This is known as the doctrine of double effect. Less than a year later, in January 2000, we had the case of Harold Shipman, a doctor found guilty of 15 murders of his patients, but suspected of many more, possibly 250. 80% of his victims were elderly women. Shipman administered lethal doses of diamorphine used as pain relief for cancer patients, and then signing patients' death certificates. Shipman was left money in his patients' wills. Shipman is the only British doctor to have been found guilty of murdering his patients. If you have any points you'd like to make or have any questions, please go to the Strange Stories UK site on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you for Damselfly for the background music. And again, best wishes to all in 2019. Goodbye.